Have you ever wanted to play the perfect tabletop game where story beats run smoothly and there's no awkward pauses between dice rolls? Yeah, me too. But since that's impossible, I did the next best thing and novelized my Witcher tabletop game to showcase the story in its cleanest form. The result is this podcast. I'm Jacob Gerstel, and this is Tales from the Witcher. Part audiobook, part actual play, part serialized adventure, and a whole new way to vicariously enjoy tabletop games. Welcome to the world of The Witcher, where monsters roam freely and the continent is once again at war. If you were hoping to follow the plight of Geralt of Rivia, however, I'm not going to be doing that. Instead, I offer you the story of a not-so-merry band of degenerates who are making their way across the continent. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Mid-8. 19. Scattered campfires illuminated Blagrin. A few elves hopped up from their meager dinners and rushed towards Ethramel and Alu as they rode into the elven ruins. You're back, a gaunt elf with a blonde cowlick said. How was it? Will the humans know what hits them? That remains to be seen. Ethramel scanned the ruins. Where's Shenny? In her tent, a she-elf with large blue eyes said. Can I ask you something? Go ahead. Well, the she-elf said, you're a sorcerer, right? Ethramel nodded, and her awestruck voice tied his stomach into knots. Yes. The elf with the cowlick grinned widely at the she-elf, showcasing a few missing teeth. See, I knew it. The sorcerer could be anywhere right now, but he's here with us. He turned back to Ethramel. And that's because our cause is righteous. Indeed, Ethramel said slowly. Can I ask how old you are? Fifty-two, cowlick said. Forty-nine, the she-elf said. Her hand instinctively rested on her slightly swollen stomach. By Melitel, they're so young, Ethramel thought. Still young enough to breed. Why are they out here, risking their lives when they could be doing something useful for our people and repopulating? Ethramel's own breeding years were far behind him. It varied from elf to elf, of course, but generally the unsaid lose their fertility by their mid-sixties. A cruel joke by the gods, the sorcerer always thought to grant elves such long lives, but such a short span to propagate. I need to see Shenny, he finally said, when he realized the youngsters weren't going away. Of course, the she-elf said with a sad smile. Sorry for intruding. Don't apologize, kin. You are our future, after all. He found Shenny in her tent, scrutinizing a few documents. So the great sorcerer returns, she said without looking up. What news have you? It's not rosy. Ethramel sat down without being invited. He explained all that he saw, from the fortified walls, to the guards' patrols, to the defensible manor. The words wearied him, and when he was done, he wanted nothing more than to sleep. Shenny nodded. I'm surprised you came back then. Wouldn't it be better if you were inside the town? I wanted to discuss our... options. Shenny pushed the documents away and looked up. All right then. Discuss. The Kedweni delegation is staying in the Lord's Manor. It will be difficult to reach them if they were to retreat. That's why we're waiting until mid-eight, when they're out in the open and drunk. Kamek's walls will be difficult to scale, and even if we did, they could close the iron gates on us. We would be trapped and surrounded in Kalmek. So we'll get control of the northern gate, Shenny said dismissively, or leave a few elves to guard it. Ethramel ground his teeth. And dwindle our numbers further. 
I fear you're missing the point here, Shenny. What is your point, then? Say it plain. The sorcerer sighed and lightly scratched the scarred half of his face. A full-on attack of Kalmek would fail. What if we instead waited and ambushed the delegation on the road? And have every brigand in the north take credit for the attack? That would work against us. Ethramel narrowed his eyes. What's the end goal here, Shenny? To kill the delegation if we can, Shenny growled, and cause as much destruction to Kalmek as we can manage. To show the north and Nilfgaard alike that the Scoriatel are not to be forgotten. That we cannot be forgotten. And after that? The scarred she-elf shrugged. Unimportant. It's pretty damned important to me. I value my neck and the necks of my people. Unlike you, it seems. Shenny stood and spat on the ground. You know nothing of me, sorcerer. What would you have us do? We've enough food to last a few more days. And if hunger doesn't kill us, sickness will. An elf can only sleep in the dirt so many nights. My commando stands with me. They are willing to risk their lives for our people's liberation. A gust of wind nearly blew out the candles. Ethramel lowered his voice, as if fearing the wind would carry his words to Kalmek. I can buy you food from town. Then you could head south. At Alonkov, where your sister lives, is a tower. I made sure no humans would want to get near it. He was surprised at the pleading tone in his voice. Take our people there, Shenny. Rebuild your strength. Live a while, for fuck's sake. That's your proposed solution, then, Shenny said. Retreat? I thought you wanted to leave a scar from which the humans will never heal. The sorcerer rubbed his brow, unsure of what he wanted other than a drink. Attacking Kalmek is not our only option. I only ask you think on the others I've proposed. I will, Shenny said, and Ethramel didn't know if she was lying. But there was little else he could accomplish tonight. Best to let it lay for now. He stood up. Good night, Shenny. Good night, Ethramel. There was only one day until mid-eight. 20. Cedrilla Strat brushed her hair and admired herself in the looking-glass. It was a luxury she was seldom afforded at the various pig-shit inns she'd played across the north. It was a fine-looking-glass, too, with an artfully carved cedarwood frame and a polished mirror that left no blemishes in her reflection. The woman Cedra saw in the looking-glass appeared older than she remembered. A few more wrinkles lining the forehead, darker bags under the eyes. The long days on the road had taken their toll. Her skin was dried out, and flaked off along her hairline with each brush. Her hair had also lost its glossy shine, and was plagued with split ends. This was not the woman Cedra remembered when she lived with her family in Kedwin. The woman back then practically shined when she entered the room, wearing fine clothes of the newest fashion, hair done up with a countless number of pins that took her servants hours to set. That noblewoman was also totally and completely miserable. Better this appearance, then, Cedra thought. At least I've earned it. She pushed her hair behind her right ear and examined the scar that ran down the length of her cheek. That, at least, hadn't changed, and she had certainly earned it. She and Lavender had almost escaped that sheep-shagging Kedweni town. Almost. Lavender's keeper, Master Ash, got word of their tryst, and would be damned if he lost his finest whore. He said as much to Cedra as he sliced her face in an alleyway a night before the planned escape. He left her with a warning, as she tried to keep her cheek from splitting open. I'll do worse if you ever come back. Cedra got the message, and did what she did best. She left town that night without a word to Lavender, and continued wandering the road. And now, such wandering had led her to Lord Haman's manor. It was the finest place she'd stayed since leaving home, and the looking-glass really was exquisite. Cedra finished brushing, stretched, 
and sat on her feather bed. She picked up her lute and started warming up. The midsummer feast was tomorrow, and she had to be prepared. A knock on the door interrupted her practice. Cedra set the lute down and cracked her bedroom door. A man her age, of fine features, stood on the other end. He wore a dark blue velvet doublet. A silver eagle on a tawny shield was embroidered on his right breast. Cedra didn't recognize the sigil, but she remembered the man. He was one of the many Adonian knights visiting Lord Haman's court. Cedra groped for the name. Lady Cedra, the knight said with a smile. Sir... Silas, the knight laughed. I don't hold it against you. We haven't spoken much. You're quite popular here, you know. Doesn't take much, Cedra thought. Any dullard that can play half as well as I would be just as popular. Still, she smiled and opened the door. I'm flattered an esteemed knight would think so. Please come in, Sir Silas. Silas took two steps into the room and stopped. Cedra offered him a seat, and he didn't take it. The knight cleared his throat and said, I don't wish to take away from your practice, Lady Cedra, so I'll be quick. Do you have anyone to, er, uh, accompany you to the feast tomorrow? Cedra raised an eyebrow, a smile tugging at the corner of her mouth. Why, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, you know, someone to escort you around the town. Silas chewed his lower lip. To stay by your side for the evening. Ah, Cedra decided to stop toying with the poor knight. No one has given me the pleasure. Would you like to, Sir Silas? Silas straightened and nodded. I would, if you'd accept me. Cedra looked the knight over. He was certainly dashing, and knew how to dress himself. The sword at his side didn't mean he knew how to use it, but it hung off him well. She could certainly do worse. I will, and with thanks. I wish to make my intentions clear at the outset. Silas's voice took on more confidence, and his eyes burned bright. I will not act untoward in any way. My intentions are quite clean. Cedra suppressed the urge to laugh, and wished she had spent the last few days speaking with this knight. He would have provided more entertainment than the flock of nobles she'd been playing for. Is that so? Yes. I'm mainly looking for an interesting conversationalist, and you've proven you have that in spades, far more than the nobles who have squatted here. All they seem to care about is commerce or rank. Cedra had to agree. The feather beds and polished looking glasses were all well and good, but it couldn't substitute for interesting company. And I'm sure that's all you're looking for in a partner, Sir Silas. The knight smiled with complete sincerity. It is, believe it or not. And truth be told, I don't think you're interested in the attention of men at all. Cedra made her face a blank mask. She had learned that trick from her cousin Caitly, current head of the dying Lestrette family. Caitly's face was always inscrutable. Cedra would almost admire it if she didn't loathe the woman so much. I think you're speaking out of turn, she said. Perhaps. Silas lowered his voice. Do you want to know how I know this? Cedra nodded before she could stop herself. Because I'm not interested in the attention of women. So Silas straightened his back and smiled. I thought that'd make us a good match. Don't you agree? Cedra breathed a silent sigh of relief, and wasn't sure why. Her sexuality never caused trouble in the past, so she never tried to hide it. Still, few called it out so openly. Cedra squinted at Silas and tried to read his intentions. Plow it, she thought. He's just a man who will hold onto my arm for the evening, and if he's a bore, I'll simply lose him. Cedra had to admit, though, that this night made her curious, and curiosity had always had a powerful hold over her. You'll be happy to hear, Sir Silas, she said, that I do. Silas bowed. Then I'll take my leave. Best of luck on your ballads for tomorrow. I look forward to the conversations we'll have. 
That makes two of us, Sedra thought. She showed Sir Silas to the door, and then resumed practicing. She wanted to be at her best for tomorrow. The troubadour had done well in Kalmec, better than she had done anywhere else, and she didn't want to muck it up and go back to how things were before. Because even if the company was boring, Lord Heyman's patronage was better than trying to survive on the road. For now, at least. 21. A few hours before Sedra spoke with Sir Silas, and a few rooms down from the troubadours, Carmignola had his own business interrupted by a knock. The doctor was working well into the night, creating a set of documents. He worked on these documents carefully, as any mistake would mean his head. It was, after all, a crime to falsely impersonate a noble when you have base blood. Carmignola spent much of the evening on his feather bed thinking this over. He decided that the risk was worth it. No lords or ladies would ever listen to him, even if he was a respected doctor. But if he was a nobleman... Carmignola worked slowly, methodically. He had learned how to forge documents back in Sidorus, from an enterprising grifter who had stowed away on one of the merchant ships. He taught the young Carmignola everything he knew, in exchange for not being turned in. Forgery was a skill the doctor seldom used, but he had to admit it did come in handy from time to time. This was one such time. He was crafting a wax seal when he heard a knock on the door. Carmignola froze for a moment. It was the middle of the night, and he could think of few good reasons someone would be knocking. He quickly covered the forged documents and grabbed his dagger. He held it close to his chest as he cracked the door open. A pale man of classical features looked back at him. His dark hair was tied back into a ponytail, and he wore a black doublet. Carmignola recognized him as the only noble who didn't view him with utter scorn in Haman's study. I'm sorry, doctor. Did I wake you? Carmignola gripped his knife hilt a little tighter. No. Can I help you? Yes, in fact, you can. My name is Colden Opteld. Carmignola already knew the answer, but he asked anyway. Of? Nilfgaard. Well, technically the kingdom of Sintra, but it's all the same these days, isn't it? May I come in? Carmignola hid the dagger in his waistband and opened the door. And what, if I may ask, is a Nilfgaardian doing in Lord Haman's manor? Colden stepped inside and looked around the well-furnished room. He shrugged. My job, I suppose. You know how scouts are sent ahead of the army to find the lay of the land? It's not unlike that. I'm a diplomat. Lord Heyman welcomed me, as he would any government official who came peacefully. Carmignola nodded, but watched the man carefully. Colden had purple eyes, he noticed, common only among elves. Yet he had no pointed ears. And what business does an Elfgardian diplomat have with me? First, I must ask, what you said about the Scoyatel in the forest, is it true? What's your game, Carmignola thought. Yes. And do you know what their plans are, or if they even have any concrete plans or goals? Carmignola shook his head. Ah. Colton took a seat at Carmignola's desk. The doctor was afraid he would find the forged documents, but the diplomat just leaned back in his chair and crossed his legs. Others may not believe your story, Carmignola, but I do. I want you to take me to the camp in the forest. Can you do that? The question came without warning. Carmignola stumbled to find the right words to say. He blinked at this purple-eyed diplomat, wondering what he could possibly be thinking. Carmignola regained his footing after a few moments. I don't know how wise it would be to introduce a Nilfgaardian to the Scoyatel commando. What, with Nilfgaard's betrayal of the elves after the last war and all... Does that mean you can't show me the camp, or you won't show me the camp? Carmignola kept quiet, 
called inside and ran a hand through his silky black hair. And here I'd heard you were such a reasonable man. A good man, actually. A man who cares about saving people. Carmagnola was rapidly tiring of this puzzling diplomat and his vagaries. He ground his teeth and practically spat. And who told you such a thing about me? Drone, Loretta, and Mark, Colden said without hesitation. He smiled at Carmagnola's slackened jaw. I see you remember. I happened upon the three Nilfgaardian soldiers along the road. They had been captured at the Battle of Aldersburg and ended up on the wrong side of the front. I asked them how they could have possibly escaped the town of Undying, and they told me of a doctor from Sidorus who selflessly let them go. Colden chuckled. This doctor even told them to share what he had done if they were able. I haven't gotten the wrong doctor, have I? Carmignola remembered the three Nilfgaardians well. They had slipped out of Lonkoff with his help, because it was the right thing to do. He was glad to hear they'd survived some of their trek, at least. How are they? Well, when I saw them. Colden shrugged. We parted ways quickly. They had other matters to attend to in Aldersburg, but not before singing your praises all evening. So you can understand why I took you for the kind of doctor who liked to be helpful. Therefore, I'll ask again. Can you show me to the squirrel camp? Carmignola rubbed his eyes. Why do you want to go to the camp? I wish to speak with the squirrels, and that's all I'll share with you on the matter. But I'll make sure you're generously rewarded if you show me and my guard the way. Plus, he slammed his tilted chair back on the ground and gave a charming smile. I'll put a good word in for you with Lord Heyman. I may be Nilfgaardian, but you'd be surprised the respect I'm given when my empire is poised to conquer the kingdom of Edern. So do we have a deal? Carmignola wished he needed more time to consider Colden Opteld's proposal. He wished he needed more time to think about why a Nilfgaardian diplomat wanted to meet with the Scoyatel. But the truth was that he didn't need any time at all to make his decision. The truth was that someone was finally listening to his warnings, and someone might finally take action against Ethramel and his new friends. So Carmignola said, What time do you wish to leave? First light tomorrow. We'll go with my six guards. You do know the way, yes? Yes, Carmignola lied. He could at least take them to where his blindfold was yanked off. Good, then I'll see you in a few hours, doctor. And thank you. The pleasure is all mine, Carmignola thought to say, but held his tongue. He would derive pleasure from intercepting the Scoyatel and Ethramel and ruining whatever grand plans they may have. He would derive great pleasure from that, regardless of the final outcome. 22. The air felt thinner, and not just because mid-eight, a time of weakening boundaries between alternate worlds and realities, was tomorrow. Tabek ran a hand down a diseased tree trunk, and a large strip of bark cracked off and fell onto the dead undergrowth. The air felt thinner, but more laden with magic, as if he stepped into the calm of a raging storm. This made Tabek nervous. He scratched at his scabbing forearm. He had felt this way since he met Zebo in the forest two days before. The Witcher thought the dying vegetation and lack of animals were a result of the Indrega infestation. Tabek thought that might be part of the tale, but not all of it. He'd originally traveled to this forest to find a modicum of peace, but he found only unease. The Indrega, Tabek was convinced, were not the cause of this rot. Tabek didn't feel comfortable staying in Kalmek, so he returned to the forest after they turned Grinnelmen to the town guards. Zevo wished Tabek well and said he hoped to see him again. Tabek wished the same, though he didn't know if he would. He failed to see the point in following the Witcher or his companions. Their goals, whatever they were, were not his own. And just what are my goals, Tabek wondered as he shuffled through the forest. 
He saw no Andregas in this section of it, though the dead vegetation became more prominent. He hunkered down and ran a hand over a patch of yellowed grass. It snapped at his barest touch and floated away in the wind. First, it's to find out what's causing this unease. And after that? Tobik shrugged, for he didn't know. But one thing at a time. He continued on, deeper into the forest, and came across the ritual circle an hour later. The circle was defined by a few rough-hewn stones planted into the withered ground. Bits of ephemera, candle nubs, scraps of paper weighted down with smooth stones, burnt tobacco shreds, were scattered inside. The plant life around this circle looked to be the most rotten in all of the rotted forest. Blackened trees sagged like melted candles, threatening to fall and crush whatever was in its path. Tobek stepped into the circle and felt the faint residue of power immediately. He breathed through his nose and tried to assess how long ago the circle was used. It was difficult to say. A few weeks at least. Possibly even half a year. Looks like the woodsman wasn't lying, Tobek thought. There was a witch in the woods, and they're long gone by now. Another nagging thought followed. What were they trying to do out here? Whatever it was had started sucking life out of the forest. The witch was drawing on the natural power around them for some sort of ritual, and Tobek had neither the training nor experience to even guess what the witch was trying to accomplish. But there was something he could do. Tobek shielded his eyes and looked up at the noonday sun. Best to wait until tomorrow to do it, I think. It'll be easier during mid-eight, a time of weakening boundaries. That'll do it for this episode of Tales from the Witcher. This podcast is written and produced by Jacob Gerstel. The Witcher novels are by Andrzej Zipkowski. The Witcher games are by CD Projekt Red. And The Witcher tabletop RPG is by R. Talsorian Games. The music is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. Be sure to leave a rating and a review, and to spread the word of this podcast far and wide. You can follow the podcast at TalesWitcherPod on X, or at TalesFromTheWitcher.Buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week.